Good morning. Please open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We've been in a series, Redeeming the Time, and today is the last day we are closing the series, and we're talking about Jesus' final hour. <clears throat> and we will see that the way uh, the writer of the Gospel of John, John himself, uh, uses this term hour in a different way than maybe we, uh, we would. Uh, John chapter 12 gives us a glimpse of Jesus' teaching directly to his public uh, audience. This is not just to the disciples. And in chapter 12, we have three important episodes. We have uh, Mary anointing Jesus. We have the so-called triumphal entry. And then we have uh, the visit of the Greeks who come and say, we want to see Jesus. But before we get into the text, I want us to see how we're defining the terms. Last week, Sam encouraged us to define the terms. Uh, there are two key words in Greek uh, for the word time. One is chronos, from where we have the word chronology. And uh, this chronos simply refers to a period of time, like here in Luke 1, now the time, the chronos, came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. But the, the word that we are focusing on today is uh, kairos. Uh, kairos is not just a point in time, but appointed time. Uh, this usually refers to fulfillment of prophecy and things of that nature. When Jesus starts his ministry in Mark 1.5, he says... The t uh, 115, the time, the kairos is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It is this term kairos that John uses, a synonym of kairos, which is the word hora, from where we have the word hour. But as we will see, it doesn't just refer to 60 minutes. It refers to a longer period of time. And actually, in his book, The Gospel of Glory, Richard Bauckham, who teaches the New Testament, writes this. And uh, I, he explains how John uses the word hour. He says, the whole gospel story moves towards what is called Jesus' hour. By this, John seems to mean the complex of events that occur in chapters 12 through 20. For example, the passion, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. This is the hour of exaltation where he is exalted on the cross in order to be exalted to heaven. The cross is the climax of the work that God has given Jesus to do. And so it is the climax of his life of seeking God's glory, not his own. It is therefore the climax of the revelation of God's glory in the flesh. So this hour is synonym to kairos. And it is the word that John uses again in our text in chapter 12, where Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You might say, well, why doesn't he say uh, that the Son of God should be crucified? Because that's what's going to happen. Well, uh, it's important why. And as we will see a little uh, later. So if you have your Bibles in chapter 12, let's uh, look at chapter 12, starting in verse 1, uh, remembering that what Jesus is talking about is, hey, my hour has come. At the beginning of the gospel, at the wedding of Cana, uh, remember Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, they have no more wine. 
And Jesus says to Mary what? Woman, my hour has not yet come. But now, we're, we're at the beginning of what we call the Passion Week. Christianity celebrates Passion Week this week. We're starting to talk about Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And Jesus says, the hour has come. So starting verse 1 of chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And in order to understand chapter 12, we need to understand why the gospel was written. And we don't have to guess. At the end of the gospel of John, John tells us why he writes the book. Uh, John 20, verses 30 and 31. I, Jesus, did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos. He's, he writes about 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. That's very important to understand. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they did the heavy lifting for what happened. You know, they talk about Bethlehem and what happened earlier on. John is not interested in that. Matthew, Mark, and Luke already have done the heavy lifting. Now John basically divides his book into two parts. The book of signs and the book of glory. So for the first uh, 11 chapters, he just shows miracles. What miracles Jesus has done. And the point is this. These are not just miracles so people can see and say, oh, how beautiful. No. So they may believe. And that's why John says, all these things have happened so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. D.A. Carson writes 
and I quote, John's purpose is not academic. He writes in order that men and women may believe certain propositional truth, the truth that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, uh, the Jesus whose portrait is drawn in his gospel. But such faith is not an end in itself. It is directed toward the goal of a personal eschatological salvation, that by believing you may have life in his name. That is still the purpose of the book today. So the, for the first 11 chapters, uh, what John does, he shows the signs, the miracles of Jesus, how he is indeed God. Who can turn water into wine? Only Jesus does that. Remember, I grew up in a, a church where they told me wine is bad. But if I read John 2, Jesus is not against wine. He's against cheap wine. <laughs> I knew I have at least one follower. Uh, but see, all these signs are not made for people to say, oh, how beautiful Jesus. No, they are there to see that Jesus indeed is God. Only God could do these things. Only God can turn water into wine. Only God can walk on water. And only God can raise the dead. Only God can raise the dead. So this story in chapter 11 is key to our story. And it's very important because Lazarus is named. Why is Lazarus named? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are silent about who this Lazarus is. Well, remember, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are writing about 20, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Lazarus is still a wanted man. What does the Bible say? The religious leaders were looking to kill him. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not mentioning him by name. But John, he's writing 60 years later. Hey, no more religious leaders. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Now John writes about 90 AD. Nobody cares about Lazarus anymore because those guys are not after him to kill him anymore. So John has no problem naming Lazarus. And he is a very important part of the story in chapter 12. Let's look there. First of all, we see Mary. Mary's worship was costly. The first 11 chapters are the book of the signs. And now with chapter 12, we have the book of glory. So we see, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, if you just read this text and you don't read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would think that Jesus washed only Je Jesus' feet, Right? But that's if you got, you got to read the other Gospels. We have four Gospels so we can see the different perspectives. The other, the other Gospels tell us that, Jesus, that Mary anointed not just Jesus' feet, but she started at the head. And he anointed his whole body. But what John does, he says, Mary anointed even Jesus' feet. Not just his body, but even the feet. is is anointing, washing the feet, an important part in John? John 13. What are, the, what are the disciples now willing to do? The disciples are not willing to wash each other's feet. And yet Mary 
not only is washing Jesus' feet, but she's washing it with a, with a pure nard imported from India that costs uh, about one year's wages. With what? He, he's anointing Jesus' feet with oil and wiping them with, with baby wipes, right? No, with her hair. And the Bible says that for a woman, her hair is her glory. glory. Remember, chapter 12 starts the book of, of glory. This, my dear brothers and sisters, is a slap in the face of all the disciples who talk a good talk. But when it comes to worship, they're not willing to worship Jesus in a costly manner. This is a slap in the face of, of, Lazar, of, uh, of Judas, as we will see uh, in a second. Uh, uh, I like what Dr. Homer Kent Jr. says in his John commentary. Uh, he says, Mary sensed the darkness of the hour and the hostility against Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus had recently uh, revealed his coming death and some of the occasions were public. Even though the disciples refused to believe it, Mary's mind accepted the fact and realized that when tragedy came, there would be no time for usual niceties. My dear brothers and sisters, we need to learn from Mary that costly worship involves thoughtful preparation. Mary took time to prepare for worship. This, this didn't just happen spontaneously. All of a sudden, Mary decided, oh, I'm going to worship Jesus. No. Costly worship involves thoughtful preparation. She prepared. She brought this nard with her. She was ready to do what she came to do because costly worship always, always involves thoughtful preparation and involves personal consecration. No lady would untie her hair in a public or to wash someone's feet with it unless that lady was in the presence of her beloved. And Mary is saying what? I'm in the presence of my beloved. I have no problem untying my hair and wiping Jesus' feet with it because I am in the presence of my beloved. And when you love your God, you have no problem putting thoughtful preparation into your worship and you have no problem having a costly preparation when you worship. And uh, everybody stood up and applauded Mary, right? Yeah, Mary, right? No, Mary's worship was costly, but it was also criticized. In verses 4 and 5, <clears throat> actually all the way to 6, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Imagine the scene. Mary kneels down to wash the feet of Jesus, and she is criticized by a thief who will stab Jesus in the back. The critics usually are such people. So you got to be careful paying too much attention to the critics. But Judas knows the price. Uh, he knows the cost. 300 denarii, which was one year's wages. 300 days of working. Why not? Why 300? Why not 365? 
Well, because of Sabbath. You would, you would not work on the Sabbath, and you would not work on holy days. So when you take all those away, you get about 300. D.A. Carson explains, the sum was enormous. Either Mary and her family were wealthy, or perhaps this was a familiar heirloom that had been passed down to her. Either way, Judas displays a certain utilitarianism that pits pragmatic compassion, concern for the poor, against extravagant, unqualified devotion. If self-righteous piety sometimes snuff out genuine compassion, it must also be admitted with shame that social activism, even that which meets real needs, sometimes masks a spirit that knows nothing of worship and devotion. Mary's, cost, Mary's worship was costly. It was criticized, but it was confirmed by Jesus himself. Verses 7 and 8, Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial, for the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. D.A. Carson explains, Mary meant this act to be costly, an act of humble devotion. But like Caiaphas in chapter 11, she signaled more than she knew. In the culture of the day, it was not thought inappropriate to spend lavish sums at a funeral, including the cost of the perfumes that were designed to stifle the smell of decay. But here was Mary, lavishly pouring out perfume on Jesus, while he was still alive. Small wonder Jesus sees it as a prefiguring of the anointing that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus performed. Uh, growing up in uh, Romania, uh, there was a song based on this text that uh, people actually translated into Romanian and uh, sang it. I'm assuming those of you who are 60 years or older you might know it so if you're uh, if you don't if you're not in that group just listen if you know the song sing it with me sitting at the feet of Jesus oh what words I hear him say happy place so near so precious may it find me there each day sitting at the feet of jesus i would look upon the past for his love has been so gracious it has won my heart at last sitting at the feet of jesus where can mortal be more blessed there i lay my sins and sorrow and when weary find sweet rest sitting at the feet of jesus there i love to weep and pray from his fullness gather grace and comfort every day Mary's worship was costly 
He was criticized, and he was confirmed by Jesus. And after that, John moves into the so-called triumphal entry. And I know some of you have seen the movies, right, with uh, the Hollywood production of this, and I want you to delete that from your memory bank. And I want you to listen to what the Bible says. Who were the people who were crying out, Hosanna? Uh, John divides the group into three, two types of people. Uh, there were uh, those who came before, those who came after, and then you have the religious leaders. So there were three groups of people in the crowd. It is obvious that not everybody cried out Hosanna, which indeed was from Psalm 118. Uh, by the way, the word Hosanna is not supposed to be a praise word. We use it as a praise word, and maybe over time it became a praise word, but Hosanna is an imperative that says, that's actually a request, save us. That, that, that's what the word is supposed to mean. Save us. What, what the people were trying to say is that you are the Messiah, save us. But they had the wrong view of the Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who will kill the Romans and bring political stability. And that's not the kind of Messiah Jesus is. The Bible says, there's the first group, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. That's the first group. These are people from outside Jerusalem who are coming to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. That's the group number one. The Bible says they took branches of palm trees. And again, the palm branches were kind of a national symbol. This was not new. This happened uh, before, as I'll explain in a second. And they want, uh, they want out to meet him crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes, who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. See, palm branches became a national symbol about 200 years before. And Jesus was not the only person who heard the, the words, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. About 150 years later, uh, earlier than Jesus, uh, the Jews did that again did that before, when Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of Jerusalem. And they came and said, hey, Simon, you are our Messiah. So they sang, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Simon was not the Messiah. Well, maybe Jesus is. They were hoping. But Jesus does not enter Jerusalem on a horse. See, back then, a king who was in, at war would ride a horse. But a king who was at peace would ride a donkey. So Jesus is not riding on a war horse. He's riding on a donkey to tell them that I come in peace. After all, he is the prince of peace. And that's exactly what he does. And that's why they are disappointed that he is not coming to destroy, to destroy the Romans. But the second group of people I want us to see... Who are the second group of people who are in this crowd? John tells us. These are the people who witnessed Lazarus' death and resurrection. This is very important. Verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. 
Please understand, this is not a triumphal entry like you have a king coming and everybody, all the cities there and plotting and saying, Hosanna. No, no, there's two groups of people. Only two of the groups are crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who are coming to the Passover and those who have seen Lazarus being raised from the dead. The third group, as you can see in this painting, are the religious leaders who are, who are just there to see what Jesus would do during this uh, pass, Passover. I call this the so-called triumphal entry. You have to understand, nowhere in the Bible does it say the triumphal entry. That's a word, that's a title added later by translators. I say this is a so-called triumphal entry because of what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say, people, you have got it, you have understood, you have believed. That's not what he says. Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 41 through 44, we are told that Jesus weeps. When he drew near the city and saw it, he wept over it saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricade around you and surround you and hem you in every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will leave not one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Did that happen? Yeah, in 70 AD, the Romans came. And destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple. So now when John is writing 20 years after, this was fulfilled prophecy. And Jesus then says, now the hour has come. And when he talks about the hour, it's a time to suffer and be glorified. Remember, the second part of the book is the book of glory. Glorification through suffering. Glorification through crucifixion. Which it, it, didn't, it didn't compute into their into their minds but jesus says the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified he doesn't say for the son of man to be crucified although that will happen he says for the son of god for a son of man to be glorified and when the jews when the these greeks come and say we want to see jesus jesus again says this is the time for judgment on this world now the prince of the world will be driven out and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You see, Jesus wants to redeem us, not just for time, but for eternity. So that's the question. It's not just how you spend your time. God is giving us the gift of time. It's not just we have to use it wisely now, but how are we wising our time now in light of the fact that we have eternity? And then John shows the fact that indeed Jesus will be exalted. So the cross is not a place for shame, but is the place of exaltation. Throughout the gospel, Jesus will say, starting in chapter 3, verse 14, when he talks to, the, to Nicodemus, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, when you lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And now in 1232, He writes, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to Myself. If you lived in the, that first century and you saw a crucified person on the side of the street, what would you say? Shame. But John says, I look at Jesus on the cross and I see glory. He doesn't say we have seen his shame. He said we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. 
See, the cross, my dear brothers and sisters, is not just the place of exaltation. It is the place for coronation. John is the only one who states that the inscription on Jesus' cross is in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. Because Jesus was not only the uh, king for the Jews. He wanted to be the king for everybody. The Jews, the Greeks, the Latins, from which we come, all of us, somehow. Unless you were born here in uh, the United States before the 15th century. And I know you were not. We have seen his glory. I love the old hymns. There's an old hymn. Don't worry, I will not be singing it. Um, I'm selling DVDs at the end. <laughs> a kid, a kid. No, no DVDs. This is the old hymn writer writes this. I boast not of works, nor tell of good deeds. For not have I done to merit his grace. All glory and praise shall rest upon him, so willing to die in my place. So I will glory in the cross. In the cross, lest his suffering all be in vain, and I will weep no more for the cross that he bore. I will glory in the cross. That, that's why, my dear brothers and sisters, we can have crosses in church. And that's why you can have a cross around your neck. Not because it's the instrument of torture, but because Jesus changes the instrument of torture into an instrument of glory. Whatever Jesus touches, he changes. So I have 30 seconds for the application. Here we go. If you're here this morning, I want to ask you, is Jesus your Savior? See, Jesus is the Savior. And Jesus' final hour inaugurated our final hour. Time is very important. Because you need to be ready now for Jesus' returning. But the first step in redeeming the time is to surrender your life to the eternal keeper of time. See, Jesus was not contained by time and space until he came here. And he lived with us in time and space in order to redeem us, not just for time, but also eternity. And for those of us who are saved, we need to learn from Mary to worship Jesus in our home. My dear brothers and sisters, nothing magical happens when you walk into this building. Worship, if, if you don't worship at home, the question is, do you really worship him here? Because worshiping Jesus doesn't start in this building. It should start at home like it did uh, for Mary. Reading your scripture should start at home. Praying with your kids should start at home. Model for them what it means to read the Bible. Model for them what it means to, to pray together. And let's learn from Mary to worship Jesus with the best that you have. Think about even your quiet time, when you spend time with Jesus, are you sometimes guilty like me that I wait until the end of the day when I crash and burn and when I fall asleep reading the Bible? That's not giving Jesus my best. Giving Jesus my best is when I am awake, fresh, and I read, and I don't fall asleep, but I read, and I get more excited as I read, and I get joy as I read, so when we say give Jesus our best, you don't have to break any perfume bottles. All you have to do is carve some time out of your day and give Jesus your best. 
Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die for sinners such as us. Forgive us for the many times when we gave you the leftovers, when we gave our prime time to, to sports, to movies, to things that perish and don't build. Teach us what it means to give us our best, to give you our best, best of our time, of our energy, of our, of our years of life. Help us to be like Mary, to our worship may involve the thoughtful preparation and costly involvement. Personal consecration, not just in the morning, but in the evening, at lunchtime, whatever we do, may we do it for your glory. Teach us what it means to redeem the time in the way we spend time with you, the way you spend time with others. And as we think about this week, what Jesus has done for us, may we learn what it means to glory in his cross and to look at him and to say, glory. We have seen his glory. And that's why we want to glorify him through everything that we say and do, not just today, but every day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.